0: Uh, we, it's difficult to survive in a capitalist society, especially when one's identities are under attack. So hire us, hire trans folks. That's something else you can do. Those are the ones I'll share. There's a lot of other ways you can, you can help. Uh, Danielle mentioned some as well. Um, again, I'm also going to say also not to call the police. That's something else too. There's this whole discussion happening. I know it's 2 PM, so we'll be wrapping up shortly. There's a transgender professionals Facebook page and one woman was promoted to be a police officer and I'll, and there's been a discussion going back and forth as to how that, whether or not that's helpful to the community. It's been quite engaging. I'll, I'll leave that there. So there's a lot of discussions to be had indeed. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Danny Castro, for calling in. Thank you, Kangs. And I misheard the name of Kang's friend who will also be running the Stacy? Is that it? If not, I apologize um, for the, the workshop that's happening tomorrow about de-escalation. That's fucking awesome. I appreciate folks doing that. People doing the work to make this world bearable and so we can find ways of supporting each other. That's great. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a human on this planet. <laughs> it's not easy. Thank you for being considerate. Again, check out uh, Kineas and Poseidon. That's happening through April 2nd. So this weekend will be the last weekend, and that's at Dragon Theater in Redwood City. Have a great week. Keep on doing good things. There's a lot to think about. Uh, And I will end (laughs) here with uh, some more music. And yeah, stay tuned. At 3 p.m. is... Common Thread Collective here at Mutiny Radio. Have a lovely week, everybody.
1: And I walked in there that day, my hair was looking good. I had my Panty Division t-shirt on. Yeah. I, I had, was packing in my pants. I, I was that. feeling good and powerful proud to be a queer, and I had to fill out the driver's license uh, information, my name, my age, and all that. And when I got to sex, when I got to the sex part, I kind of, I had to stop for a second. I thought, you know, I'm really tired about the state policing my gender, and I'm tired of having to pick one or the other. So I wrote down she-male. down she mail and finally half an hour later it was my turn I gave it to the clerk and he starts looking at me he looks at my paper he looks me up looks me down and I start to get real nervous like oh my god I'm gonna get arrested at the DMV <laughs> and there's no pride in that <laughs> anyways he says to me you know I have a problem with your form and I'm like really what I don't know not that of your paperwork. Yes sir, what is the problem? He looks at me and he says, you're not 140 pounds. <laughs> yes indeed, things have changed a lot. This is, uh, I- I'm basically a very superficial person and this song is my anthem to that. It's called Objectified. Yeah. First, I better go and throw up. Other girls can burn those bras. I follow a high law. I have this deep obsession. I've got a pimp my because I.
0: you're listening to Mutineer radio coming up right now will be uh, an episode of women's magazine with global valve from a couple weeks ago followed by the common thread collective at 3 p.m stay tuned triple j you're listening to the apex twin live at the wireless
1: and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the bay.
2: to San Francisco, featuring 25 shows in five days and 50 comedians from across the entire U.S. From Washington and
0: Portland to Los Angeles, New York to Indiana, Tennessee to Pennsylvania, these comics will
2: join San Francisco's best underground comedians for five days of comedy at Mutiny Radio. All shows will be live streaming and available after via podcast at www.mutinyradio.fm. But see them live in our intimate 30-seat performance space at 781 21st Street in the Mission, March 1st through 5th. Tickets
0: available on our website, www.mutneradio.fm. Now. Brought to you by our generous festival sponsors, Alta California, the Destiny Destiny's Mom, What a Tomato Brothers Company, the Law Offices, John Keith Strauss III, Hacienda,
2: Rufruja.com, JackieTown.org, Brooke Heineken, Berber Ferber, and Trino Where'd
3: you get the tomato? What a tomato. Are you hot? So at the end of April, April 30th, Lois grew up in New York City where she initially studied ballet, but she has spent many years teaching the dunk. Welcome to Women's Magazine. It is Friday, March 24th. This is Global Val here. Really happy to be here uh, as part of uh, our series, or the series I'm putting on together, which is for Women's History Herstory Month. So I'm going to be talking to um, an artist, a fine artist today, a dancer, who's going to be telling us about the life and the legacy of the revolutionary feminist dancer of the early part of the 20th century, Isadora Duncan. So please stay tuned. I want to play a little more music for you from a crew called Hazy Loper. That's
1: oh, yes, just where you
3: Hello, and welcome again to Women's Magazine with Global Val here at MutinyRadio.fm in the Mission District of San Francisco, my hometown. And uh, we're continuing. This is March. It's March 24th, 2017. And we're continuing with our month of women's history. It's Women's National Women's History Month. We'll call it Her Stories Month. Um, and we're continuing today the conversation about Isadora Duncan, who is widely credited as being the mother of modern dance. Duncan was born in San Francisco in 1877, but this California native daughter traveled and performed throughout the world and was lauded as one of the most influential artists of her time. But beyond dancing, Isadora Duncan was a writer, a political activist, and a revolutionary feminist who changed the way that women were viewed in the world. So I'm so happy because joining us today to tell us about the life and the legacy of this fascinating woman is Lois Flood. And Lois Flood has been performing the exquisite dances of Isadora Duncan for over 25 years. Her interpretations are widely recognized for their dynamic, expressive, and dramatic qualities. She's also acknowledged for her sensitive and profound musicality as she creates visual music through movement. Lois is a third generation Duncan dancer, which she'll tell us about, who has performed and taught master classes in New York City, Paris, and San Francisco. Lois is well known throughout Northern California, where she performs lecture and dance programs at theaters, museums, and colleges, and has an upcoming show at the Corette Auditorium in San Francisco at the end of April, April thirtieth. Lois grew up in New York City, where she initially studied ballet. But she has spent many years teaching the Duncan dance to all ages, and she is also the founder of Diablo Dance Theater. She is with us today to talk about, talk to us about the life and the legacy of Isadora Duncan. So, Lois Flood, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Valerie. That was uh, just a wonderful introduction, and and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share the legacy of Isadora Duncan, as you mentioned, a California native daughter and one of the most famous people of the early 20th century. She literally changed the way the world viewed women in art. She changed the Russian ballet. She did so many things that really, really helped women and brought a new view and a new impetus to dance, to culture. And the, the most amazing thing is she was raised in Oakland. She was born in San Francisco and raised in Oakland and literally raised in poverty. Her father abandoned the family when she was a baby. And at that time, there were no social services. The mother didn't have Social Security or welfare or anything like that. So the mother had to rely on her skills as a piano piano teacher, and she did some crocheting. And she was left with four children, and Isadora was the youngest. So the family survived on very, very little. But the benefit that Isadora had was that her mother was very cultured. Her mother could play the piano. Her mother was well-read and educated, so her mother imparted um, this wonderful music played Chopin and Schubert and Gluck. And so the children grew up in a rich environment of music. Their, their mother read Shakespeare, Walt Whitman. So it, it was kind of a, a rich life in many ways, but still they were very, very poor. Um, and they moved often because they couldn't pay the rent. But it's still, it's still she's still developed into this amazing artist of the world. She's often called, she's a living symbol of revolt, of women's emancipation. And that's, the Oakland area was a big influence on Isadora. When she was growing up, uh, the area was rural. And so uh, little Isadora would go outside and play in nature, and she was really, this influenced her dance, being so close to nature. She uh, started a little school for children, and she taught the neighborhood children dancing. And uh, so the Oakland area was just, in many ways, a wonderful place to grow up, Um, and her thing that's very remarkable about her about Isadora was that she dropped out of school when she was 12 years old. <laughs> and that's, you know, amazing. But she did go to the library, the Oakland Main Library, and spent lots of time there, and the head librarian and poet, California's first poet, Ina Coolbrith was her mentor. And Ina would give Isadora books to read. And so Isadora was at the library often and brought the books home and read almost everything that Ina Kuhlberth gave her. And this was, Ina was a, a major influence on Isadora. So these, this is sort of some of the background of how she became Isadora. She, she rejected, she did take some ballet classes as a, as a young girl. And I think it was possibly her third ballet class, she came home and she told her mother, she said, I I, I don't really want to wear ballet slippers. I don't like corsets. And so she just never went back to ballet. And she started dancing barefoot or with little sandals. And uh, her mother had these pretty curtains of lace and satin. And she used this lace and satin curtains and made herself uh, a costume. Um, at that time, it was the, um, the Victorian period where uh, Greek ideals were very popular. And of course, everyone was influenced by, this, by the times as we are today. So Isadora was influenced by Greek ideals and Greek culture because it was what she saw around her. So this is one of the things, these, the, the Greek ideals, Greek art, Greek sculpture was one of the things that she used to inspire her movement. So she used nature. She used what was popular, Greek art, Greek sculpture, Greek ideals. She studied the forms, and she went to museums and used the forms in her dance. The other thing that made Isadora absolutely fantastically famous was she was the first to dance to classical music. Of course, the ballet used classical music, but the music at that time was written for the ballet, such as the Nutcracker or Swan Lake, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, Swan Lake. Music was written for the ballet. Isadora came along and said, Oh, gee, I love that Chopin waltz, I think I'll dance to it. And at that time, that was scandalous. Nobody danced to Chopin, Schubert, Gluck. So these are the things that w- made her unique and caused her to stand out. But the biggest thing is Isadora left us, besides dancing this natural, beautiful way, besides using classical music, she was the first, imagine in 1902, to come up with the idea and say, gee, I I feel like movement starts at the solar plexus. Mm. You feel the movement first in your soul, in your solar plexus, and you move from your center. Now, I was a ballet teacher, so I can describe the difference between what Isadora invented in 1902, And what the ballet training is, the ballet training, for the most part, is your back is straight, for the most part, and the movement starts in your lower back. And your arms and legs move independently of your solar plexus. So can you imagine this woman coming out with no ballet slippers, no corset, (laughs) uh, a, a costume that looks like a Greek tunic, and dancing to Schubert and Chopin, and expressing nature. Oh my God, this was like very unusual. And so this these are the elements that really are the foundation of her dance. But getting back to her childhood, so she was raised in Oakland, and she stayed in Oakland, um, and traveled, and... and and had small programs and traveled to Northern California and Southern California a little bit. And then the family, she realized that she needed to leave California. So when she was roughly 18 years old, she first went to Chicago and stayed in Chicago for about a year and then moved on to New York and um, was in a company, um, like a small office, Broadway Company, where she did a little bit of classical dance, and then the family moved to England, and that's where her career really started she 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 took her entire family, they followed her, and they all moved to England and you can imagine how they got to England because they were very, very poor. They went on a cattle car boat
3: ship Wow.
2: <laughs> and it was pretty rough.
3: I imagine so.
2: So, so then she—that's—that's that's basically um, the background of Isadora. I mean, so much more to say. So, but, um,
3: so just I uh, wanted to kind of mention, you know, a point that you just made was, you know, well, she went to to England and her family followed her. And obviously it's her family. And so, you know, th- it makes sense that they might want to be with her. But I think one of the things about Isadora is that she had s- this kind of charisma that had people attracted to her, um, wherever she went and whatever she did. Can Talk a little bit more about that, that magnetism, um, of Isadora Duncan.
2: Well, she, she came from a family where the, the entire family was involved with Isadora. As children, they they put on plays. Her brother was a great influence. Uh, he helped her. He 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 made drawings. They would go to museums, and he would make drawings, and and she would use the drawings as her inspiration. But. Um, she, she knew what she wanted, and she went for it. And I, I think the most remarkable thing about her is that she was raised in abject poverty. She had nothing. She didn't have a family uh, to pay for dance lessons. She just went out, and she really knew what she wanted. But the other thing that's important is her dance did evolve. As she went to Europe, and she made friends with the great poets and artists and musicians and composers, she was exposed to a whole world of great artists. And so these people definitely influenced her. And wherever she went, you know, she she, she was in a company in New York, the, the Daily Company, and she knew what she wanted to dance. She wanted to dance from her solar plexus. She wanted to express nature. Here is, is a little quote by uh, Nijinsky. Isidore dared to give freedom to movement. Extended, she extended the boundaries within which the artist could move. She abolished the frontiers that had been sanctioned by the custom, the the traditional ballet. She opened doors. Fokine, the great Fokine, followed her step, footsteps before before her the imagination for dance was was frozen. It was frozen in the ballet form. And so when she came along and she did have technique and she she walked on stage and she presented this this unusual movement based on curvier linear line, based on nature, based on movement from the solar plexus and great expression. That's the element that Isadora put in her dance. It wasn't just, let's see how high I can get on half toe, let's (laughs) see how high I can kick my leg, let's see any of those things. She had a way, for example, of running where Fauquin said she ran and she left herself behind. (laughs) So it's like nature. Nature moves in a wave-like motion and Isadora spoke often about the body moving in a wave-like motion like the ocean the waves like radio waves and so in our dance in the Duncan dance technique that she left us and ideas about dance is that we when we dance we're like nature we don't stop the movement continues and when we hit the peak we we come back, and then we go out, and then we come back. We never pose. This dance is absolutely not about posing. It's about inner reflection and expressing the beautiful music that she found and she chose to dance to.
0: Hmm.
2: Every piece of music that she choreographed to, there may be one or two that I'm not crazy about, but every other piece, and I know possibly 70 dancers. Um, The music is stunning. Stunning. People don't I'm sure when they're watching a Duncan dancer, they're not sure if they like the music more or if they like the dancer. Hmm. Because her choice of music was just beautiful, perfect. Chopin waltzes, nocturnes, etudes. She also created a suite of dances to Luke, who was the first uh, composer, operatic composer in the 1700s, to compose an opera uh, behind, with the myths, using uh, Greek myth as his, as his inspiration. So, and of course, Isadora often used the Greek myth in many of her dances. And, so, um,
3: and she so was, she, I'm sorry to interrupt, I was, she was a, an inspiration to many artists, fine artists of her time.
2: Yes, and I, I would like to, I, I just discovered the history of, of how she did, her very first visit to Russia was in 1904, and Isadora at the time was, had just become famous. Loie Fuller invited Isadora to dance in her program. At the very end of the program, she gave Isadora an opportunity to perform. And that was the impetus for Isadora to take off. After they saw Isadora, she was invited to dance in Budapest. And just, it was a great performance. She was carried through the streets after her performance, uh, and they raved and they loved her. But when she was in Budapest, she received a telegram from, from the Russian Diaghilev Ballet. Please, please, they begged her to go to Russia. And this was 1904 well i mean that was an amazing honor so of course within a few weeks she arrived in russia it was 1904 and in the and so within a day she performed uh for the russian dignitaries uh diaghilev from the russian ballet the diaghilev ballet nijinsky was in the audience pavlova um uh, uh, frederick ashton all these famous artists were in the audience. And she danced in this large room, and it was a wonderful grand piano. And the dance that changed the way uh, uh, Nijinsky danced was when he saw Isadora perform The Death and the Maiden. And it's a Chopin mazurka. Now, the reason this changed Nijinsky was because this dance, not only did Isadora come out, with a Greek tunic and the body moving in a curvier line and her head thrown back in a Dionysus way and bare feet and kind of a soft, su- supple, expressive body using a small bit of mime. She performed The Death and the Maiden, and this dance contains many elements that they had never, the Russians had never seen in one dance. It contained passion courage, strength, defiance in one dance, in three minutes. And Nijinsky was just taken aback. He just just was wow, this is amazing. So Isadora absolutely changed the Russian ballet. And in 1907, this is documented, Nijinsky created the fawn. And no question that he was influenced by the great Isadora, and then of course Vakine changed many of his ballets, and and Anna Pavlova loved Isadora. They became friends, and Anna Pavlova did many. Uh, I have a book of Anna Pavlova, and you can see her standing, being photographed, looking like an Isadora wannabe, although she was gorgeous in the movements, but of course she still had point shoes on. And, and even the, and she would wear her little Greek headset headdress. So Isadora definitely in, influenced the great Russian ballet and that opened doors for artists. And that's, that's the important thing is that she did open the door for women in the arts. I mean, before then, uh, the, in, in America, If it wasn't the ballet, it was dance hall girls dancing around. No one ever did this classical, beautiful dance that literally, absolutely expresses human emotions, expresses universal feelings. One, if one is watching a Duncan dancer, you will almost always feel something. You will relate to her or him. So, it's it's unique in that way, because my goal is to express the music and express something to share with the audience. I have a dance called the Narcissus. Of course, Isadora didn't name her dances. Later on, they gave the Isadorables gave the dances a name. Names it's a little easier to remember one dance from another and you know when you watch the dance you can see the woman looking at herself in the mirror and oh how wonderful i am and and then you see her on the floor looking at her reflection oh there i am and there has to be a slight bit of mime isadora definitely used very carefully she used mine to express parts of the dance she, It wasn't corny it has to be done from the inside otherwise it will be corny so if you're not feeling what you're ex- showing it's uh, it's going to look silly so that's why not many dancers Duncan dancers today are using the mind because, it's a difficult thing to to put into the dance today.
3: And and let's talk about the the Duncan dancers, this, this legacy, because she was, um, you know, at the, as you were saying, is at the early part of the 20th century, not really captured so much on, on film, but that she has this legacy of, uh, de- of dancers and you're a, a third generation Duncan dancer. Uh, you mentioned the Isadorables who were the, the young girls that, that Isadora ended up, um, teaching and adopting. then adopting. Um, talk about the legacy of, of the dance and oh, then wonderful. also yeah. how, how you became, how you uh, became part of that legacy.
2: Well, um, Isadora adopted, uh, she lost, Isadora had two children and she lost her children in an automobile accident. The car, um, uh, Re- went into the Sin River, and her two little children died. Many years later, she opened a school. She was very interested in children's education, and she felt that children should be educated uh, in, an, in an environment where there's art, music, and more culture, not just academic education. But anyway, Isadora, to go on, Isadora... Um, she adopted six girls, six young women, and she gave them her name. And these young women lived with Isadora. They, they followed Isadora, and they watched her perform for years and years. She rarely danced with them. Sometimes they would open a program for her, but mostly the girls were watching her, and they watched her. And then when Isadora was home with the girls, she would teach them technique and how to move and how to respond to the music not how to but to listen to the music so these girls three of them Irma Anna and Maria Teresa eventually moved to New York City and the three of them each one had their own company and they they taught Duncan Dance and they had programs performances my teachers danced in the Isadorables companies. My teacher, Hortense, Julia Levine, um, uh, Sylvia Gold, Jamesy e. Delap. all of these women danced with Isadora's daughters in their separate companies. My favorite teacher was Hortense Kaloris. She took me under her wing when she was quite elderly, and invited me to stay with her in her home and i was friends with her i loved her and she taught me some wonderful wonderful things that are treasures to me and i use today when i dance so i learned my duncan dance for the most part i left a very important person out mignon garland Mignon Garland was the only person at the time teaching Isadora Duncan dance in San Francisco. And um, so I studied with her for about a year and a half. And then I went to Maria Ruiz, who had a Duncan, Isadora Duncan Company, also in San Francisco. And I studied with her for three years. And then I made numerous trips to New York and studied with Hortense and took workshops from other local New York Dunkin Dancers, Jeannie Bragiani and Lori Bellilov. I took workshops with with the two women that were closer to my age. But mostly my main technique came from Hortense, who was second generation. And so, um I could tell you how I was first introduced to Dunkin' Dance if you'd like to know.
3: Yes, uh, well, yes, definitely. I, I
2: was a ballet girl. I like to make a, a joke of it. I, I love taking ballet classes. It was my hobby, my love. I took ballet classes every day for 23 years. It was just every penny I had went to ballet classes. Uh, I studied with Alan Howard from the Pacific Ballet and Ron Greedy. And um, I was with Ron Greedy for 20 years. So I had a... a I was good in ballet. I never really, I did a little bit of ballet dancing, but not much. So I opened a ballet school. With all my training, I decided to open a ballet school in Danville, a children's ballet school. And it was quite successful. And then about 23 years ago, I met the mother of my son's best friend. And she came to the house and she said, Oh, Lois, you have to take an Isadora Duncan class. And I said, oh, no, that's maypole dance. Not, I'm not going to a, a dunking class. Forget it. If it doesn't have a grand jeté or, or a triple pirouette, uh, it's not dance. So she really, really was after me. So I finally, after the third try, I said, okay, I'll go. I went to my very first lesson with Mignon Garland in San Francisco on Polk Street. And uh, that was the turning point of my life. I could not believe it. I was absolutely taken aback. This was it. I loved it. I loved the music. I loved everything about it. And so I continued my ballet classes, but then I became a devotee of Isadora Duncan. And so that, that was the beginning. But it really took an effort by this woman to really pull me by the scruff of the neck to this class. And so I'm I'm really grateful to her that that she did that. So so and then then I began my research and study and to be honest with you it took probably possibly eight or nine years before I really felt I was doing Isadora's dance. Because I had so much ballet technique that it took years to, re- to let go of it. Mm. I thought I was the queen of the class because I could jump and leap and do everything. But I was missing the entire system of the idea and the, and the beautiful dance that she left us. I was not moving from the solar plexus. Um, I was focusing on technique. And it really took many, many years uh, to let go of that. So that, you know, it was an eye-opener. When I finally <clears throat> was able to understand what I was doing, it was a big breakthrough.
3: Well, it seems like uh, Isadora, <laughs> it makes sense um, that, uh, that it would come that way. It sounds like Isadora was, was uh, a breakthrough Uh, person herself and um, tell us about some of the performances that that you've done over the years.
2: Okay I uh, thank you for asking. Um, So I um, my goal and mission in life is to introduce Isadora's dance and philosophy and life to as many people as I can. When I present Isadora when I do a program I, I focus on Isadora. I talk about Isadora briefly. I show the historical dances, and they're wonderful because most of them are under four minutes. And I, I and I always say, well, you know, if you don't like one dance, it'll be over in four minutes or less, and there'll be another one. So my program consists of a, an introductory talk. It's short, brief, um, and I. Uh, present the idea of the solar plexus and and the greek ideals and then i show a body of her work lyrical dances and then i bring a, a narrator i invite a narrator to narrate quotes by isadora and famous people who saw isadora and the narrator will read for four or five minutes and then i will come back and show some of isadora's uh, dramatic dances two or three. And again, they're mostly under four minutes. And then the narrator will come out and read some quotes by Isadora. And I will read a few of them to you this afternoon. Um, And then I come back and, for example, my last program at Occidental Center for the Arts, I performed the March Slav. And that's that happens to be an 11 minute dance. It's one of Isadora's major works. And it's a dance that Isadora created that really changed Isadora's way of dancing. When she went to Russia the day after Bloody Sunday, and she disembarked from the train, and it was a couple days after Bloody Sunday, she saw the serfs carrying their dead and wounded, and she was just horrified. And she created a dance to Tchaikovsky's March Slav. The music is stunning. It's magnificent. And the dance is about breaking loose and breaking away, and uh, they're unrelenting. They, they are. The dancer comes out and she's, her arms are tied in red ropes, and she's bent over and she's carrying a weight on her back. And then, as the dance progresses, she, she pushes the, the the weight away. She breaks loose from the ropes, and she does these and of course this happens in, in 11 minutes and she she's free and she runs out and she gives this giant scream with her body and arms and head thrown back I'm free and then she calls people to follow her follow me Isadora said I never dance a solo I dance the chorus so you see gestures like calling and pointing and Dionysus moves where her head is thrown back in freedom and her solar plexus is lifted and this sense of freedom you get and the music is just so beautiful and so powerful that everyone in the audience is involved with me and it's for me it's freedom of not the russian revolution because i'm living in 2017 but for me it's freedom of woman of freedom, of breaking loose of the bounds that have restrained us, the constraints that have held us back. I I like to often say that Isadora was a living symbol of revolt, of women's emancipation. Um, So that's what's in my mind when I'm doing this dance. So.